I'm always amazed at what big stories you can tell through one simple life, uh, through one simple experience. It's going to touch and intersect with all sorts of things if it's done well. That's Dr. Stephen Sloan, director of the Baylor Institute for Oral History, speaking on the art and practice of the oral history interview. Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast found at the intersection of spiritual quest and scholarly inquiry, and coming to you from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host for this episode, titled State of the Heart of Oral History. It was a delight to host Dr. Sloan, along with Judy Hunnicky and Steve Graham of the Mary Baker Eddy Library, for a roundtable conversation on this topic. Judy Hunnicky and Steve Graham are co-leaders of the library's Oral History Project, an important new initiative to build the library's collection of oral histories for the digital age. Judy is Senior Research Archivist at the Library, and Steve is Senior Manager, Programs and Communications. In addition to leading the Baylor University Institute for Oral History, Dr. Sloan is Associate Professor of History at Baylor. He's also co-editor of Listening on the Edge, Oral History in the Aftermath of Crisis, winner of the Oral History Association's 2015 Book Award. He wrote the book's concluding essay titled, the Fabric of Crisis, the Heart of Oral History. So thank you for joining us for this conversation on oral history. It leads off with a question from Judy Hunnicky, informed and inspired by her work as an archivist. As I said, I'm an archivist. I'm someone whose work mainly revolves around finding and analyzing paper and electronic documents. So oral histories and reminiscences seem a little different to me. I'd be interested in, in your comments on this, Stephen. So it's not about whether we've decided whether documents or oral histories are more true. First of all, I, I realize that probably no document or oral history can be seen as entirely truthful. So clearly an oral history often goes beyond uncovering facts that were previously lost or hidden. But, but how do oral historians verify their accounts, or do they? Or how do they utilize accounts that might possibly be inaccurate? That's a great question. Our collection here is about 6,500 interviews, and I've been asked before if I could verify everything in our interviews are true. <laughs> and I said, if that was the case, we'd still be working on the first one. <laughs> right. uh, <laughs> I think one of the things that working with oral history and any source material helps you realize is is the biases and the silences and the distortions that exist in every element of the historical record. Uh, the gaps, the silences, uh, the things that are misleading that are put down, uh, the ways in which uh, documents often reveal formal relationships, but they, the informal relationships uh, are missing and absent. Uh, oral historians, as you might imagine, have thought a lot about this. Alessandro Portelli, who's kind of one of our, the deans of oral history, uh, says oftentimes a lie can reveal more than the truth. So looking at the ways in which distortions enter into the historical record and asking ourselves, well, why is it remembered that way? Why does that distortion appear? Uh, why are things misremembered or put out of order? 
sometimes looking at those things can be quite revealing. And so uh, we, we are in a culture that definitely is, is much more of a text-based culture than an oral culture. And so I think here in, in that culture, sometimes when we talk about oral sources, uh, they seem a little scarier or they seem a little more flimsy um, because they're based on memory and the passage of time. But I would say uh, we've got to maybe become a little more skeptical of our written sources, <laughs> which may help us bring around a bit and realize the value of these oral histories as, as we think about a multitude of ways to get at, as you say, what is true. Uh, ultimately, the way I view it is if I can get more perspectives, even if those perspectives disagree with each other, I can get closer to what the truth is. Mm. You know, I. I wrote down a really pithy quote, I thought, that uh, <laughs> came from something put out by the Oral History Foundation. The woman's name is Linda Barnacle, who wrote this. And she said, we needn't be burdened about whether every detail of a story is true. Rather, we should be concerned about the truth of the story. Mm. That sounds like maybe a little bit what you're getting uh, at. Th- th- that's right. I wish I said that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but the truth the truth is I did not, yeah. <laughs> so, Stephen, when you talk about that idea of perspective, how do you deal with the issue of bias? Um, how do you deal with it as an interviewer as well as with the people that you interview? One of the things that's happened with oral history, and this is, this is true in, in the historical field, is we've become a little more comfortable with subjectivity Mm. (laughs) over the years. Sometimes I read students' quotes by historians that talk about history in very scientific terms, that we are objective truth finders. And, you know, we enter into a laboratory, we assemble the facts, and we emerge with a hypothesis that is tested and true uh, in a kind of a clinical sort of manner. Now I would say uh, historians are much more comfortable with the idea of history as an art, that there is a balance there. There is the objectivity and testing and truth, uh, but there's also the jazz in it mm-hmm. uh, and the flexibility and the subjectivity in it. And so I would address bias in ways that I can in the interview. And in my knowledge, my grander knowledge of, say, events, as I work with an interviewee, I'm often moving from the particular to the universal and from the universal to the particular. I'm taking their particular story and their particular perspective on a larger event to try to understand the larger event, and then I'm moving from larger events or issues back to their particular story to try to understand it. I'm very intrigued um, in relation to what you've just been saying with this quotation from your conclusion to Listening on the Edge, Oral History in the Aftermath of Crisis. And you write, quote, Though there may be many motivations for an interviewer or narrator to use oral history, ultimately it is the public purpose of oral history that gives the interview its enduring meaning and worth. End of quote. How are you sort of anticipating that when you're conducting an oral history? What its public purpose Will be, and then you know. I'd just love to hear from you, Judy and and Steve, how you think about what the public purpose uh, may be of the oral histories that you've been conducting. 
Well, I'd love to start with Judy and Steve. I've been hogging the mic. Okay. All right. So far, and then I'll follow up. Okay. Well, I think we can talk briefly about the fact that uh, some recent oral histories that we did with two former Christian science military chaplains are going to be a part of an exhibit uh, that's opening this year on the history of the Christian science chaplaincy. Uh, It's been a century this year. And I'm very excited about the fact that in addition to uh, some objects and some documents that will be in the exhibit cases, we'll also have chaplains speaking about their experiences in the military. I think this adds uh, an extra dimension that will make the rest of the exhibit even more valuable. I have a little different observation on, on to answer the question, which is uh, this is still a new project for us. We recently had a meeting about going forward with it that, that asked some, some of these questions. How are we going to archive these materials, make them accessible to patrons? How are we going to approach oral history in the light of our strategic plan? We're considering this as an ongoing effort. At this point, I think our, our mission, say, is, is something as vague as interviewing individuals involved in significant church undertakings. And uh, that's probably not what you, Stephen, would call well-defined. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's more defined than some oral history programs, uh, that, so I, I will give you that. Public purpose is, of course, an extreme archival concern because the interview is the oral history. We can produce transcripts, we can produce abstracts, we can produce things from it, but that video recording, that audio recording is the thing, and the voice is central in what this is. And so how to preserve that and make it available long-term is a big concern, a a big part of fulfilling this public purpose. And I know y'all are thinking about that there. But it's also thinking about trying to think ahead and think uh, what sort of questions will they approach this interview with uh, in the future? Am I an insider or an outsider on the project I'm conducting How do I have a conversation in such a way that it's useful and fruitful for outsiders Mm -hmm. to understand whatever topic we're talking about, whatever topic we're examining? Uh, I've listened to a lot of interviews that are very closed conversations. They're not as useful, and they don't invite listeners and users in uh, to try to understand a broader history because the interviewer didn't work to create an open and accessible conversation. And so sometimes keeping that in mind is, is really key, particularly if we're at an institution doing histories related to the work of that institution. Those are some things to think about uh, in keeping it public. Uh, Jonathan, one of the things I was thinking about when I wrote that in the conclusion is there's an article, there's a chapter in there by a psychologist that worked uh, after 9-11. Mm-hmm and had a client that was very reticent to enter into the process of uh, therapy, just engaging in telling their story for uh, their own healing of their own therapeutic value. Uh, But when the therapist suggested that the client share their story so that it might be shared with others, they became galvanized. Mm. They became excited at the idea that 
their story could have a broader meaning and their story might find resonance in someone else or might help someone else learn something. And so I think about that uh, when I'm doing interviews and when I'm talking about to interviewees about the value of doing an interview is that public purpose is essential. And uh, I think it is the thing that makes this different. Uh, if, if we're journalists, we're working for a different purpose. Uh, we're working for tomorrow's purpose, and we're working for a very narrow purpose. This broader, ongoing, living life of this oral history, we never know how it's going to be used 25 years, 50 years in the future. But if it's publicly available and we've done our job to take good care of it, uh, there's limitless possibilities. One of the the chief intents of, of this is is to capture the history of the Christian science movement. It's part of our our, our mission here, and uh, we've we've really uncovered some some very significant stuff, Judy. I think you would agree with me. A couple of examples would be a chaplain who who was talking about uh, her experiences, basically forging her way in in the military at a time when when women were just fighting battles on all sides and not being accepted and and another chaplain who who was really struggling with what he was going to do when faced with the Vietnam war and and conscription and the chaplaincy presenting to him not just a way to to serve his country as he very much wanted to do, but actually opening up an entire career for him. And, and that was one where, where there were several tremendously moving uh, moments in that interview. That's fantastic. It's, it's also interesting to point out that uh, this idea of, uh, I don't know, we call it individual perspectives, I think was the term that you used earlier, Stephen, is something that, this church has been interested in for quite some time. Mm. Because back in 1917, a public notice actually appeared in the church's weekly magazine, The Christian Science Sentinel, which asks if Christian scientists or others who knew Mrs. Eddy personally or through correspondence would be willing to furnish their reminiscences or furnish data of historical value to the church. And we actually have this collection that we call the Reminiscence File that consists of over 800 uh, first and and second person histories by various people starting from that time period, starting from the teens through, I think, about the 1970s or 80s. And some of them are very, very interesting. Some of them are very long. Some of them are very short. The the one thing that I do wish about these various reminiscences is is that uh, many of them are very very selective in just talking about their experiences with Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of the Christian Science Church, instead of talking about their entire experience, say, with Christian science or with Christian scientists. What do you think yeah. of that, Stephen? Well, uh, you know, we I love life history. You know, I, I love kind of gathering a broader context. What a wonderful resource you mentioned, but, you know, what if we knew who that person was, if we had a fuller contextual understanding of who that person was before we got their views or their experience or their relationship uh, with Mary Baker Eddy? Wouldn't the thing that we wanted be that much richer and deeper? And then we'd also have all this other information alongside that. And so... So I always, when I 
do uh, an oral history interview, I will work toward life history. Most of the interviews I do are about an hour and a half long. Sometimes I'll work with an interviewee in more than one interview, but I like to go slowly. I like to go slowly because um, I like to understand the formative aspects of this perspective before I'm getting at their perspective on whatever the thing is that we're talking about. And of course, what's great with oral history, um, we can talk about whatever brought us together today, but we can also talk about the ongoing and shifting meaning of that. And of course, oral history gives this this opportunity to not only consider an event, but go through the reconsiderations of that event and kind of the shifting meaning and and role of that event in a life. And so I, I, I really enjoy capturing kind of a broad, in, in other, not a journalistic approach where we open with how did you feel when your house burned down <laughs> and then we pass the mic over. <laughs> it's capturing that broad, broader story. So I think the long form of oral history is essential. Now, I would argue it's pretty countercultural right now, but I would say that makes it even more important Mm-hmm. that we hold to the long form. Stephen, have have you ever had somebody who initially maybe struggled or or it didn't look like it was uh, as productive come back at you later and say, now I'm looking back and seeing what that meant to me or in retrospect, that oral history experience helped me or gave me a new perspective? It's very intimidating for someone to sit down in front of a recorder and bear their life. (laughs) (laughs) And so they don't really know what that is going to be like. There's an old saying that says that the greatest gift you can give someone is to listen to their stories. Um, And just that idea of uh, at the end of the oral history, if they've had that experience of, of being able to tell their story, of course, they're all generally concerned if they did a good job or not. <laughs> but just having that opportunity to tell their story and to voice their story, um, I have had that experience where they've come back around and they're very grateful. They're very grateful that they've had the opportunity to do it. I'm always amazed at what big stories you can tell through one simple life, uh, through one simple experience. Uh, it's going to touch and intersect with all sorts of things if it's done well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars on State of the Heart of Oral History, in which we explored the art, methodology, and public purpose of conducting oral history interviews. Our guests were Dr. Stephen Sloan, director of the Institute for Oral History at Baylor University and Judy Honecky and Steve Graham of the Mary Baker Eddy Library Oral History Project. In our next episode, we welcome Dr. Ronit Stahl, author of Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in Modern America. We will be discussing issues around the pursuit of religious pluralism in the United States military ministry. In 2012, Stahl was a fellow at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, Her work in the archives contributed to her book, published by Harvard University Press in 2017. Dr. Stahl is Assistant Professor of History at the University of California, Berkeley. 
As part of our discussion with Dr. Stahl, we will feature clips from the oral history interviews with former Christian Science military chaplains referenced in this past episode. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2018.